first podcast of the week. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. I am your host, Charlie Schrem, and you're watching another epic episode of Untold Stories, where twice a week, you and I together for the past three years get to dive deep with some of crypto's most influential leaders, Bitcoin OGs, brilliant people, politicians, everyone and anyone. Those literally, there's not been one episode where we have not learned something from someone brilliant. And I'm excited because we have a great guest for you today. Talk about a lot of really, really cool topics. Um, Shiv Malik, thank you so much for coming on Untold Stories. It's a real, real pleasure, Charlie. And, and that's a tall order to fill now. Oh, everyone <laughs> says that. But it's like at the end of the show, I say like, see, I told you so. Well, let's see. Let's see. Well, uh, let's see how it goes. I'm going to do a, a quick introduction. But before I do, how was your, uh, your weekend? Yeah, weekend was good. Weekend was good. Uh, it's, uh, I'm in London and, uh, we've got a bit of a heat wave on. So these things are rare things usually in England. Uh, you know, the stereotype is obviously that it's rainy and, and foggy. It uh, usually is. Uh, so enjoying it immensely. I'm, I'm actually see Amelia Clark in, in a play, um, in her from, uh, Game of Thrones, right? Oh, that's so cool. That's yeah. actually, Clarice. there's another <laughs> Game of Thrones character that I may be doing a film with in the next few months. So I'm really oh, excited nice. to meet him. I can't say because nice. there's a podcast and it's not public yet, but I'm really excited about that. I have to watch the show. I've never watched the show before. You've never watched Game of Thrones? No, no. I, oh, I've never watched that. And then also there's another show, Outlander. And we were shooting a movie in the city where Outlander, Outlander was shot in Scotland a few months ago. And I was like, I should have watched this show beforehand. Well, Game of Thrones is, I mean, that's like weeks of your life that I think you really should dedicate to watching it. It's become a, it's become part of the culture. All right. Let's tell, let's tell everyone what, what you've, what you've done and, and who you are. You're a technologist, award nominated broadcaster, author of two books, former Guardian investigative journalist and co-founder of the Intergenerational Foundation Think Tank. You joined our space in 2017 as an advisor to the Golem Project, OG project. I remember talking to them. Uh, and now you're the, the co-founder of, of Pool Data, which is a really cool project. And I'm excited for you to tell us more about it. I don't know where to start. I, I want to talk about your work in, in the media. I want to talk about the Intergenerational Foundation. That's where I was doing a ton of reading about it this morning. Mm. Um, but I also want to talk about Pool Data. So what should we take first? I don't know. We start at the beginning, I guess. I've, I've had like a really crazy career. Um, and I feel incredibly grateful. Like I think it gives you just a lot of you know, just a multitude of experiences and uh, things to draw upon. You know, at one point, briefly, I was a war reporter. Um, so reporting from Afghanistan and Pakistan, you know, and sort of talking and, and specializing in terrorism uh, and talking to people from Al-Qaeda, um, you know, at points I kind of had guns held against my head, um, you know, chasing me out of town because they just didn't oh, want to give man. an interview. Uh, you know, it was an investigative journalist then on the desk for The Guardian, yeah, as I said, I've written a couple of books. So I think this kind of stuff really prepares you for whatever you do next in life. Oh, man. So you had a big dose of humility training uh, going through that, probably. You probably reflect back on that as like some of the times in your life that you say about, oh, I, I've, you know, I've been through that. I could do anything else in my life at this moment. Yeah. I mean, people, you know, were saying about a year ago when I was studying pool, they're like, oh, you know, startups, really difficult. It's really hard. I'm like, yeah. And then looking at my CV and they're like, well, you don't have much experience Shiv, in, in doing startups. I'm like, yeah, I don't. You're right. It is going to be hard. I don't doubt that. But, um, but I have done some crazy stuff before. And hopefully that allows me to deal with the stress, right? 
Um, I mean, there's one thing to, you know, be on a print deadline, right? Trying to get something out for the front page uh, and you've got like 25 minutes to do it. It's another thing like, you know, with someone saying, get out of the room or we'll kill you. Uh, and, and I guess all of this, yeah, you're right. It does prepare you for these kinds of stresses. And you can look back and you've got this repository of, of, of kind of information and experience and, 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 um, and handling people, right? And going, okay, I hope I can do this, right? I hope I can, I can, I can pull upon those things in these moments. It does, I don't know if it makes it any easier because it is really difficult, right? Bringing an organization together. This is the thing. There's so many, there, there's, there's, you know, we all learn culture from film and TV and books and they don't stray from describing the world of like the war reporter, right? There's zero dark 30 and all those type of films. What's mm. like the biggest misconception of that, of that world? Like what was your daily life waking up, going to sleep every day? Where did you live? It's often, I mean, so I was, okay. So I was in Kabul in 2004 uh, and I was 23 at the time. So I was basically an idiot, right? Oh, uh, you man. know, you don't, I was sort of, yeah, I was freelancing in a war zone, which is possibly the stupidest thing you can ever do. Oh I was staying God. in this hotel called the Mustafa Hotel. Um, and I remember the magazine I was freelancing for, this would ne- they would never get away with it uh, today because I think the stands are a bit higher. But they basically sent me off with a contract saying, like, we are not liable in the event of, of anything happening to you, right? Especially your death. Um, but we'll take your copy, right? No problem. So um, staying in a hotel called the Mustafa Hotel, which subsequently got bombed about a few years after I left. And um, and they were all, and they were, they, they, it was full of two types of people. One, freelance reporters who couldn't afford a proper hotel. Um, and like, it was a real dive. And the other uh, lot were mercenaries, right? Full of mercenaries uh, who needed a cheap place to live. So basically the, these mercenaries took me under their wing uh, and they called me Pip because I was like young and stupid. <laughs> and they basically saved me from getting killed on several occasions. Oh, man. Um, so find friends is, is probably rule number one. Um, and I think rule number two was, you know, don't, uh, yeah, sure, don't take stupid sort of decisions. But the thing is, is that you've got to, you kind of got to push yourself. Right? It's still a competitive game in a war zone. So that, that's, that's the thing. You've got to balance those things. Really, you want a good editor. And I did not have that. That's a good life lesson too. I feel like a lot of people are grow- are brought up to believe that everyone else is your competition and and you got to go out and like be only for yourself and everyone else is trying to compete with you and, and take what you have. But in my experience, especially during the times of of ultimate ultimate trauma and things like that, the friends are the ones that you want to have close to you and finding those friends. My first day in jail, what do you do? Find friends. Don't make enemies. Movies will make you believe, oh, you got to go and beat up the strongest guy. No, you make friends with the strongest guy. That's the way to do it. Yeah, I mean, just, I mean, where, I mean, this is a lesson of kind of Web3. I don't know if you want to take it that quite so soon, but, no, you know, it, 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 if you have, the way that Ethereum's always, and the Ethereum community's always been described to me is, that, you know, these are tools for uh, human coordination. Right? tools for human coordination. And it's about allowing people to actually find that symbiosis, to find cooperativism between and, and, and cooperate between other people, right? And that's far more powerful a thing than simple competition in and of itself. Uh, because you find those little facets of, uh, of huge kind of economic benefit, 
that couldn't otherwise be found through any other mechanisms, right? And I think I think that for me has always been the massive sort of appealing thing. Uh, and that as you strand through a lot of my work that I have done, aside from the kind of war reporting and the terrorism stuff, um, you're mentioning obviously me studying that that think tank, uh, the Intergenerational Foundation. Again, that, that's all about that, right? It's like, how do we do things differently? How do we think more long-term? Can't do that if you're simply in this kind of very ultra-competitive mode all the time. It's so easy to just get into the rhythm of the world and to and to get kind of jaded by it and to forget that there are people and organizations out there that are trying to rewire everything and and change some ideas. You your career went on to 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 doing some amazing things and but now you came to this and I, I kind of want to understand. It's like I have a lot of guests on the show over the years that are really passionate about the idea of like data emancipation and you know, and making sure that that all of our data is owned by us. It's free. It's 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 we control who gets to see it, when they get to see it, how they get to see it, the profit that's made for it. It's all transparent and on chain. But why why are you so passionate about this? Why should the average person care? So I come at it from the kind of socioeconomic bent, right? Uh, I think the first real experience I had of this was um, actually the Huffington Post. Uh, so I was working in The Guardian um, uh, and the Huffington Post was getting sold. And the whole thing, if you remember back in sort of 2010, was, you know, hey, you can contribute. This is the internet. Everyone's kind of, you know, working together, right? The kind of cooperative spirit to produce something amazing that just would never have been able to exist before. And then suddenly, right, Ariana Huffington and her investors decided to sell this thing for 300 million. They're like, hang on, this isn't fair. So someone is doing a lot of work. A lot of people are doing a lot of work to contribute, but you're taking all the value and the money, right? This very small coterie. This is fraud, right? And then Facebook did, you know, had its IPO in 2011, at which point I weirdly like, decided to delete my Facebook account in protest because of its IPO. Yeah. Right? It was like, this is the same thing as the Huffington Post. It's outrageous. I'm not going to help Mark Zuckerberg. And um, it was such a weird thing that like one of the news channels out here decided to call me on, like Channel 4 News. We had like, you know, we've only got three news channels at that time. So it's a big enough deal. Anyway, weirdly, they call me on and like, explain yourself, Mr. Balak, to the nation. <laughs> uh, why have you done this? And, and so I said, look, I don't, I think we're all being turned into uh, info slaves was the, the phrase I used back then. And it's just galled me ever since, right? And I think, you know, so there's a socioeconomic justice and uh, aspect to it, right? Hang on, someone is using stuff that we're creating and they're walking away with all the value and we look like chumps, right? I, I, it's it, it, And Jaron Lanier has a, a phrase for this, who was one of my intellectual heroes along with Glenn Weil from Microsoft, right? They often work together. Jaron yeah. Lanier, if you haven't read it, wrote uh, Who Who Owns the Future, right? Great book, great book. Um, and his phrase is, is data dignity, right? So it's like, oh, yeah, I, I want to I wanna know I'm not being ripped off everywhere I go on the internet, right? Because it's not a nice feeling yes. in the very least, right? Um, so there's that. Uh, uh, and then there's this other aspect, which is why I think everyone else on the street, they don't feel that, right? Fine, okay. But here's the thing you should be worried about, which is the future is run, uh, is going to be run, is currently run, um, uh, and even more so in the future uh, by data, right? So here's this very, very important kind of asset commodity, however kind of you want to describe it. Um, and if we don't have ordinary people, the people certainly who create this stuff, don't have some kind of leverage and control over it, then this 
it's going to be a really horrific future where the owners of capital, i.e. AI, right, artificial intelligence, will rinse everyone else of, of their value uh, and their economic worth. And I don't want to live in that future, right? So determinedly, uh, we have to ensure that ordinary people have leverage over the thing that feeds AI, which is data. It's not just AI. It's the whole value of 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 the internet as we know it today. You know, I'm not just talking about, you know, you specifically can very, in a, with a very fine tooth comb, can create a number of like what your value is worth based on every you know, letter and word that you have put out over the years and, and, and content that you've created. And it's very, very high quality, very expensive content and data. So you're a perfect example of like, and, and other journalists too, and maybe that's kind of where, maybe the amalgamation or like the concentration of, 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 of uh, the media, and we'll get to that in a second, was where it kind of went array. But, but you're right. It's like, it's like I grew up on the idea that every time I put my hands on my keyboard and I contribute to the world in a pro-social society through the internet, I should be able to monetize or own whatever that, whatever that contribution is. But you are and I am constantly finding out that other companies and other people are just making tons of money off of that. And we aren't. We're the last ones. Right. If at all. Right, where the last one's really again, it's that feeling of just being and like forget a chump, about privacy right? being used. Yeah, right, right. About exactly. It, and in a sense, privacy is being the retort to that, right? And it's a weird retort if you think about it, which is, hey, look, you shouldn't be able to control or utilize anything, right? Which, if you think about it from some perspective, is kind of a, a, a massive overreaction, right? I can see, you know, there are, there are small group of very sure. dedicated people out there who, who a lot of them are in Web3, right? Who believe in like total privacy, right? And, and I don't think you can really live in that world unless you actually destroy a smartphone and, and you know, uh, and completely cut yourself off. So everything becomes a sort of a compromise. And I think that's, that's very hard to live with intellectually speaking. Um, I remember to, to, to crystallize this moment, I remember going to like a Mozilla conference back in 2019 in London. And, uh, you know, and, and it was a, specifically an audience, you know, who really believes in privacy. And I said, you know, put your hands up if you own an Alexa. And a good chunk of the audience put their hands up. I was like, wow, you're like willingly allowing, um, you know, Amazon uh, and, and Jeff Bezos to spy on you, right? This was the, literally like weeks after the scandal when it came out that they were actually listening. There were people in rooms, act, yeah. human beings listening to conversations having on Alexa. So it, it's really hard to, to, to so live creepy. in that world. But 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 it's sort of an overreaction, right? Privacy is, in some sense, you know, we're sitting here, we're talking, we're sharing information. Human beings are pro-social; they want to share information, but they want to do it. I certainly want to do it on my terms, on my terms, right? And privacy is a great way. Uh, created lots of protocols and lots of applications to allow you to say no, but very few of them allow you to say yes. I do want to share in this moment. Right? And that I think is the, that balance. That's that new wave of technology. I think that's coming now, which says it's under my control to say yes or no. You're right. A lot of it is a, a an overreaction because you can't explain to someone. Now that I'm thinking about it, in 2011, the Mozilla Foundation put on this like very privacy, a pro like at the New York School of Law, and they invited me to speak about Bitcoin, and that's where I met. 
the Mount Gox guy. And that's where I met Moot, who founded 4chan. And all the guys who had were part of the Pirate Bay were there. It was like they were inviting like people that were privacy, uh, really like advocates, right? And so like really people that, are, what, 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 I don't know what a word you would... Uh, I met Weave there, the guy you know, going to jail for a long time for accidentally breaking into AT&T. Like they were inviting a lot of like people that were really pushing the envelope and I actually give them a lot of props for that. All these years later, they're still doing stuff like that. No, I mean, look, Mozilla has been uh, amazing uh, in, in forwarding a lot of ideas. I think I think the problem is actually they realize, you know, is they get where they get the money from. They get it from Google. Yeah. Um, it's such a horrible compromise in many senses, right? So that actually... Brings me to two things, but I wanted to ask you, maybe you can help us understand better. It's like, but going back to the overreaction part point that I was making before, uh, how do you, how do you, how do we change privacy and data without going to the overreaction argument all the time? You know what I mean? It's like, you have to, oh, they're listening in a room. Yes, it's only, but it's only a few people they're listening to out of hundreds of thousands. Yes, it's bad, but it's not a good enough, like, uh, to be an awfulizer. What's the word? Like, uh, someone who just like goes to the end result all the time. Just take what's, it to extremes every extreme, single time. Extreme, right? yeah, going and to extremes. What's, yeah. what's the solution there? I think the solution is this. Uh, and again, you know, Glenn Wild done a lot of work on this and, and, and lots of others now in this, uh, in the kind of the data intermediary, data union space. And, and it's this, it, it, and it's a really, it, some of it comes from this. You just have to change your perspective of the world. Lots of hyper-libertarians, lots of libertarians, see the view the, the world model, if you want, the Weltgeschaffen is like a bunch of individuals and then like big monoliths at the top, right? The state or huge corporations. Actually, that's not how the world is at all, right? Even for modeling purposes, that's way off, right? We have really? these things in the middle called agents and intermediaries. And um, sometimes they look, yes, maybe like your local bank, right? But most of the time they look like, you know, a lawyer or an accountant, uh, lots of things, the local shop right? All these things are kind of intermediaries between these things, right? And this is the, the, the more cooperative vision of the world that actually, that's how you interact with the world, right? You're built of kind of these communities which overlay and overlap constantly. That's, that's what we do with data, right? Which is you have an agent, you have an agent working for you. D dealing with data is really, I mean, in, in some senses, a lot, there's a lot of parallels there with accountancy. It's boring, it's difficult, but it's also really important that you get it right. Aren't there right? a lot of laws around it too? Yeah, there's loads of laws. No individual is ever going to be able to, in a sense, if you want, monetize or control their own data, right? In a very simplistic, crude way. Like, I do it all, right? It's really, really difficult. And there's been lots of experiments like that, like people trying to sell like their whole trove of data, like on eBay. It doesn't work, right? If you think of the whole like end-to-end -end scenario, like who's sure. going to buy that from you anyway, right? So, uh, and if you're looking to, again, utilize, you know, privacy models and share when you want to share, all this tech is really difficult to like, you know, you can't build it yourself, right? So you need an agent in the world. And this, in a sense, is what this concept of a data sure. union is, right? It's to be an agent for you in the world. I want to understand this concept of data unions, but I also want to understand when I unlock my phone and mm. I say any product, any product's name, I will see an ad for that product on my Facebook account a few hours later. What is happening there? Who are these 
dataopolis. What's going on? So for the last 20 years, right, we have lived in to sort of paraphrase Susanna Zoboff's uh, thing, you know, surveillance capitalism. We've lived in this world of surveillance data economy. And for the large part, people have wanted to surveil you because they want to make money, right? There's nothing in a sense more sure, sinister yeah. than that, uh, if you are, but it is deeply, deeply intrusive, right? So they will try any trick in the book and they have been, right? And so what they're doing uh, is either one of two things. Either they're trying to take as many inputs as possible and piece together from that at the back end, if you want. So like, oh, which website you went to, what sounds you've made, right? What steps you've made, where your geolocation has been. And they're trying to figure out if the same person they're picking up signals on is actually a person called Charlie, right? Uh, And that's actually quite difficult work, but they do it. They're getting more successful at it. Then the other way of doing it is to literally just spy on you by putting things like cookies, right? Or the apps that you're using, they have like software development kits, SDKs built into them. That The app maker's like, okay, look, I'm trying to make an app and like, I want to do the geolocation thing in real time, but that's going to take like six months to code. I'll buy it in. And that, that deal is from someone who goes, yeah, you can take our SDK on this. And you know what? Uh, what we want is the data on the users, right? So 40 of the apps that you're using probably have something like this and uh, and therefore they're spying on you, right? So this is where we've got to currently. Apple and Google have decided, right, in the name of privacy, right? This is how galling this is, that they're going to protect users now, right? Yeah. They're going to close down those SDKs. They're going to close down the cookies on Chrome in like a year's time, year and a half's time. They're, they're going to stop tracking. They're going to do X, Y, and Z, that. right? Yeah, yeah. And it's a really huge move. And it's actually... Uh, for the advertising industry, incredibly disruptive because all their input signals are being shut off, right? One by one or like almost all together and uh, and shutting down the cookies. I mean, they're calling it the cookie apocalypse in advertising and marketing. Uh, and they're scared. And Google doesn't even know how it's going to replace this, right? So a lot of it is, as you said, is about advertising. And they don't know how, you know, so we're going to go back to this old fashioned way of doing ads, which is, you remember, what, I mean, Charlie, how old are you? I can't remember, probably about my age, right? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, you pick up a newspaper and you read an ad and it's a travel ad because it's in the travel section of the newspaper, right? That makes sense. You're reading yeah. about cruises. You're like, I don't want to go on a cruise. I'm not 60, but fine. That's contextual advertising. That's where we're heading back to again, which is a real step backward in some senses. It's a huge step backward because like, yes, let's be real. Data and privacy, it's violating. You feel dirty, but n- none of us, can be honest. None of us can be honest with our, with ourselves uh, if we can't agree that our lives have not been made better by some product or service that we've purchased or have used or whatever, or even someone that we've met a relationship because of this cookie type of technology that's being like being just phased out. And what's going to replace it? Like I could totally see how an NFT type of thing. Whereas like if I gave out. I'll tell my listeners a voluntary NFT that shows that they're a listener and therefore they can be advertised to on their own if they want to be. Like, like what do you do? How does it work? So look, I think this comes down to the heart of, uh, of what advertising is. Um, and it's it, to really make it effective. Right? It's, it's all deeply psychological, right? Sure. It, it, at, at its best you want if you're on the side of the advertisers um they're they're trying to create demand in you that 
you didn't even know you really had. Otherwise, you would have bought the thing already, right? You're like, oh yeah, I need some like, a lawnmower, right? Yeah, but you didn't know you need a lawnmower. You're like, yeah, I need a lawnmower, right? That's what advertising does. And then it does this other thing, which is when it's really good. It's this serendipitous nature of it makes it feel like you're not being sold to, right? Because sure. if you feel like you're being sold, that's why people don't like being approached on the street and be like, buy this thing, right? But what you want to, you just you see it and you're like, oh yeah. Because then you felt you made that realization, right? Like, yeah, of course, isn't that? And and in and then of course, if it comes too serendipitous, it becomes what Freud would call uncanny, right? It looks like that's normal, but then suddenly it's off, and it feels like a horror movie, and that's where we've ended up with because it's too good, right? They've they, they realized true. that too. So we know we live in this horrible world where advertisers have to take our data, and we've all, I think, a lot of people, like tens of millions of people, have now become aware to this fact that this is a game. It's creepy. It's weird. Yes, I like the stuff that I'm getting, um, but I don't like how it's being done. Is there a better way of doing it? And I think, and I think this is again what kind of you know people in the uh, in this movement in and around and around data data dignity movement, if you want to call it that, are saying, yeah, you know what? Let people have their own digital stories, right? So I join a data union, let's say I join four or five of them. And then I store all that data back in my own personal data wallet, right? And I control it with the same key that I control my, let's say, Ethereum wallet with. Great, brilliant. Um, and now I can turn up and sign in with Ethereum. I'd love it to have been sign in with, with Bitcoin, but there we go. Yeah. Like, I'm a bit of an Ethereum maxi, so there I'll put my hands up and say that. Sure, sure. And, Signing with Ethereum, great. And I now have control over who I share my digital story with, right? And now I can actually know that I'm getting, I'm bargaining for stuff, right? I, I hey, I have my story. I'm ready, right? So you want to sell me stuff? Okay. You pay me to read my vault. Tell me what the best thing is. I'm going to see the ads anyway. So I can either get the random ads or not, or even better. I could turn up to an insurance website page and I don't have to fill out any of these forms anymore, Right. And, and you could actually sell me stuff that's actually useful for me because I say, fine, share, I'll, you read my data vault, give it back to me, right? Let's see what happens. Um, and you, but you get to choose whether you say yes or no to that request to read the vault, right? And a lot of this can be done, it's the beauty of it, with, with zero knowledge, right? That's, that's the beauty. That's what makes it really, I think, like, a lot more privacy secure in a way. And you can just ramp that up and ramp that up. This is really interesting. So instead of just having like an open data type of protocol, where it's all this information flying around in, in the hopes that it's kind of uh, uh, organized in a fair and transparent way. You've created these kind of data unions. What what type of ones would you join? Who creates them? So, I mean, at our last count, we counted at least 90. I think Mozilla did some research about two years ago and they counted over 110 uh, that were kind of really spread out. Some of them were like social good data unions, but we found 90 plus 95 profit-making data unions, right? And um, and it's a kind of growing ecosystem and a lot of them are well-funded. So give you some practical examples. So there's a lot of them that, that are basically say, we're a browser plugin. You want to share your clickstream data. Google already knows this information, right? Download the browser plugin, share it with us. And then they have a bunch of controls that say, look, if you don't want to share certain websites or certain things, then fine, just plug that all into here, right? Uh, we'll exclude these keywords, maybe like your name, your address, sure. whatever it might be. And then they aggregate that together and then they work on it further, right? To make sure it is privacy secure. And then they monetize it and they share that back with you in a wallet that's already in the browser plugin. Another thing might be uh, wellness data, share your Fitbit data, mobility data, 
right? Plug in with your car. There's already a data union called Demo. And they, these are all like Web3 native data unions, right? Um, there's uh, Unbanks uh, and Cake. Um, Cake is like Web2, but transferring over from what I understand uh, to, to Web3. Um, we'll come to that in a second, why they're doing that. But uh, again, plug in your financial transaction data from your bank uh, using open banking in Europe. You can do the same thing in America. And your bank's already making money from this stuff, right? You're the, you're, you're, you know, again, do you want to be a chump, right? Or do you want an agent working on your behalf to do the same thing, but sharing the profits with you? You know, data unions are really great for like religious communities in a way because they need right. ways in a private way to like market to each other. Uh, and this could be, especially when you talk to like kosher products or halal or things like that, you know, it's a very specific type of, uh, 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 data set that, that wants to be marketed to these things, like some of my family members and stuff like that. So that, that's a, a great idea as I'm thinking in my head. Wow. Yeah. And there's all sorts of ways in which you make this incredibly pro-social as well. Right. If you, if you, if it's, cause it doesn't need to be just about the monetization, right. Okay. What, what does it mean to have an agent for you? It means, okay, look, you know, if we're, looking into research into small communities that are disparate around the world. Great. This is a great way in which to aggregate information and do medical research on like very specific kind of medical diseases. Right. In fact, the medical community is now starting to adopt this. It's a lot more rigorous. It's got a lot more controls of it. Obviously, as you expect, if you're dealing with like very specific, like genomic data, for example. Um, but but the, the European union is actually a huge backer of this idea. They've got specific legislation saying, really? yes, yeah, yeah. It's called the Data Governance Act. And in it, it's all about, it's a whole section legislating on data intermediaries. Basically, it says, look, you want to be one of these things? Great. The only thing that we will license you, and basically the only thing you have to do is you've got to have a fiduciary duty to your membership, right? So now, by the way, you join the data and you're not a user, you're a member, right? Users get used, members get served, and they will have to have, if they're a licensed data union, a fiduciary duty, right? Which is great. That's what you want, right? Now I'm like a shareholder of this thing, right? Now you really are my agent. You can't screw me over without, you know, being affected in law. So, it, you know, it's all, uh, it's, it's early days for sure. But sure. the model is, is somewhat tested. It, it's starting to work. Um, the data buyers love this stuff because they're like, finally, we can buy data sets that are actually clean and not like messed up because like someone's been spying on people and have to hide their trail and blah, 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 blah. And it, you know, and it's easy to buy because the people who create this stuff want to share it. Great. Amazing. We don't have to spend six months buying a data set anymore. I'm, I'm really being blown away by this, by this whole idea of, of data unions and everything. How, how does it, is there a, a protocol that they kind of all work together on? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a, a good number of kind of, there's actually a few projects out there trying to say, look, let's, let's work, right? It's like, co you're already cooperatives. Like imagine sure. a cooperative of cooperatives, right? So the pool, the company uh, project I started, uh, co-founded, is doing exactly that. It's saying, look, hey, look, first of all, you we've all got some common problems. So the idea is, with pool, the project that I co-founded was that, you know, in a sense, we're a cooperative of cooperatives, right? Bringing together all these data units to work together. So they've all got some common problems, right? One of them is, you know, they need some basic infrastructure like payment rails and sort of messaging networks if you want. Uh, uh, and they also need a marketplace, right? So we built out a marketplace that helps them do that. Um, and then we've got, then I think the exciting stuff then starts after that, right? Once you've kind of laid the basic foundation. Um, it, it, and the first thing is like an analytics solution, 
right? Imagine now running an analytics layer over all of this data, right? Hmm. So now you can just ask a bunch of questions where you're hooking up data from Clickstream and wellness and uh, and uh, uh, and mobility data, right? And just a whole slew of verticals. That's that gets really, I think, exciting because th- those things don't exist at the moment. Because it's really hard. Like most of that data is already siloed around the world. Um, and uh, and then of course we do this thing with the data wallet. The, the data wallet is a really old idea. It's a really old technological idea. I was reading stuff about this in in I think it was in Harvard Business Review back in like the very late nineties, where they're like. You know, the authors of that paper are like, this is the only way really to go forward, right, in, 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 on the internet. Uh, and, and I read it and it's so fresh. You're like, wow, it could have been written like last week because we're, we're still facing all the same problems, which is, you know, if you're going to sell stuff to people, how do you know who they are, right? How does anyone, I mean, it's like the oldest problem on the internet, right? How does anyone know you're not a dog, right? Yeah. As that kind of New Yorker cartoon goes. We're, st- we're still trying to figure that out, right? And here we go. Here's a great way of, turning up and for someone to know, if you want them to know who they are, who you are, right? Which is you have this digital story. It's not just like your passport. It's just not like one silver bullet thing or like your iris scan, Ah. right? From WorldCoin. It's your digital story. It's your whole two years or three years worth of stuff. And you share it on your terms in the way that you want, right? And it can't be faked or overwritten or counterfeited or anything like that because it's on blockchain using this you technology. sign bits to it to blockchain right exactly you, you sign you don't put all the data into a blockchain you don't want that what you do want is to sign bits of it for verification purposes right certain like data points to the blockchain that's that's kind of the solution because if you're putting all this data on a blockchain obviously that becomes a incredibly yeah. expensive but b it means that someone can always read it so you stick it in a vault that's controlled by a private key uh, we're working with on that specific. I don't oh. know if you know three box from Lauren and, sure. and ceramic. Yeah, very um, cool. So, so, so you're using the blockchain as more of like a, a perfect measure of time and a timeline. Because the the beauty of and this is something that I forget people forget about is that you're not just looking at like a ledger with data on it that you can access, but it's also a guarantee that this was uploaded at a certain time. Yeah. And so people will, you know, it's the perfect for patent applications and things like that, because you're proving time. You can't fake the block time. The block time can't, it's, it's a perfect amount of, of time between it. If you look at it over a large amount of scale, it's, it's really beautiful. It is. It's a much underrated like use case of a blockchain, right? This thing yeah, at right. this time, right? I can verify that. Um, uh, and, and it's, a, it's done in a kind of completely decentralized way in which everyone can kind of agree. It can't be fake. It's a yeah. beautiful thing and much underused, right? We had a guest on the podcast building a blockchain and, and basically one, like the way it's set up is that I'm, I'm totally going to botch this, but it's like the cost of, of one hour Sorry, the cost of 24 hours of computation on the fastest supercomputer that exists in the world today. Like that cost is his like price oracle or something like that, because that cost doesn't change over time. Really, there hasn't been much deviation. <laughs> it's really cool. And if you incentivize the most supercomputers to mine on your protocol, you can guarantee to give an oracle of what that actual cost is at that moment in time is, is 
Brilliant. But again, going back it, to using blockchain as like an oracle for time, like that's a huge thing. It's it's so funny. I mean, Charlie, if you think about it, kind of, you know, the era since the Enlightenment, much of it, um, oh, there's a good strand of it. It's been about the pursuit of like common standards, right? Yeah. Common standards and protocols, where it's like SI units, right? Like the meter, et cetera, all the way to these kind of very central things. And I think like time on a blockchain, right? Signing things to a blockchain. I mean, and, and, and no wonder, right? Money, the transference of money, so you don't double spend is, is that. You're solving actually through yeah. um, common agreement over when something happened, right? It's not actually the transference of money in, in many ways, right? It's, it's when the thing was transferred. That counts. That makes a blockchain kind of function in that way, right? Um, so, I mean, the other way we're using, and, and people in the data union space are using blockchains uh, are obviously to transfer payments. Uh, because if you need to transfer, you know, a million dollars to a million people, you can't do that in Web two. You can't do that with fiat. No, you, you have can't. to use micropayments. Um, and uh, and the Gnosis chain. Um, uh, Polygon, et cetera, great L2 solutions uh, are, are really, really useful, taking off in that regard. I want to I take the last few minutes of the show and talk about the Intergenerational Foundation. Um, and to give a little background, like one of the reasons I moved down here to Florida is because I felt I like being around older people. I grew up just mm. because I didn't have a lot of friends growing up. Like I always hung out with like my older family members and stuff like that. And now most of my friends are probably uh, double my age or a little bit less than that. Although they don't, they don't see me because everyone down here looks freaking amazing. Right. Um, but there's so much wealth of knowledge and wisdom there, especially if you meet some of the older folks who aren't like jaded in a negative way. Mm. What do you, do you have a lot of beliefs on the same thing, like intergenerational fairness and, 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 and kind of like giving back to that generation and we should like create this cycle. How, how did that kind of, where did that fork in your life happen? So I'll put my hands up and say, it's a little bit different from that. Okay. And it was, it was, so I wrote this book called Jilted Generation in 2010 to say, actually um, on an individual basis, we kind of had no comment, right? Um, grandparents are amazing. Right. Um, let's not comment on the institution of kind of being a grandparent. Right? Yeah. We're not going to lecture people on that or being a teenager. Right. The, the way in was about economics. And again, a kind of a really vast problem that we've hit now uh, amazingly across the yes. world. So across the, kind of the Western developed world is this, which is, um, yes, on one hand, you have aging societies, but actually younger people's living standards haven't risen as anywhere near commensurate, in fact, in some cases they've fallen, especially like in Britain, um, compared to their parents' generation before them, right? So when my parents were 30, they had a lot more wealth, a lot more income than the average group peer group in, in my peer, in my peer group when, when we reached 30, right? So true, it's Which scary. Is, it is scary because it's never actually happened uh, for 150 years of data. And I can say that fairly confidently, it did a massive project for it in 2016 where we used the longest sort of running data set that we had in the world, um, which sits in Luxembourg. Interestingly, Luxembourg income study uh, yeah, right. and, and some other data sets, right? So um, it's never happened like that. And you're like, this is bad. This is a warning sign, right? Um, so why is that? And, and Charlie, it comes back to time, right? It comes back to time again. All these things, I mean, I have a bookshelf to the right of me 
several bookshelves full yeah. of books on time preference, right? Which is really weird, like a little sort of yeah. facet of economics. Um, but I think if you study economics long enough, not to say that I have, but I think a lot of it just tracks back to how long do you want to play this game for, right? Um, which is, do you want to, do you see the, these decisions in a year or two years or 10 years or 50 years, right? Because suddenly, and what we mean by time preference is, do you prefer your current self? How much do you prefer your current self over your future self? And so many of our decisions we take every day have that oh. built into it, but we just don't really acknowledge it, right? We just kind of pass over it. Because if we weighted our future self, you know, somewhat equally to our current self, then in some cases, that's a crazy decision, right? You're like, well, look, that's 50 years away. Why, why do I care about that Shiv or that Charlie as much as they don't care about the one now? Yeah. So I'm like, you know, I need to eat now, right? Um, uh, et cetera. But, you know, the more you weight those things equally, the more longevity, uh, the, the, the more prosperous you actually become, right? The Victorians were great at that. Right. That's what we mean about that kind of Puritan kind of element of why, kind of why were they great at that? Well, because they literally they they had a, like a, a ruling philosophy from the ruling class. Right. Which is we and it, oh, man, if you if you read um, Keynes's book on uh, the peace um, is written in, in 1921 uh, or published in, in, in thereabouts um, about the, Versailles, the failure of the Versailles Treaty right at the beginning of it, almost unrelated yeah. to everything else is. Um, is this huge, is this long exposition on the Victorians, right? Because he was a Victorian, right? Keynes, the, the economist, Maynard Keynes. And, uh, and he says, look, we grew up in this weird era where people were refused, rich people basically refused to spend money on themselves. They're like, I'm just going to save it all, right? And I'm going to invest it in infrastructure things, right? Like engineering and railways and, and that kind of stuff. Right? Yeah. And, they refused, and it became deeply unfashionable to actually spend money on yourself on, on, on the kind of thing that, you know, conspicuous consumption. Right. And he said that was the best thing that Victorians ever did for us because basically we all get to live off of it. Right. They, they were screwed over. Right. They could have spent it on themselves, like in the Regency era before. Right. Same thing with the younger generations now, like with the New Deal and the baby boomer generation, they invested for us and then we're not investing for them, really. Yeah. I mean, in some cases in, in Britain, what happened is that the, the, the baby boomer generation has, um, you know, if you watch their life course, a lot of politics has been dominated by them. And so they kind of get tax cuts when they reach 30 and yeah. 40, right? And they're kind of Reagan and Thatcher. Uh, then we start talking about healthcare when they need healthcare. And then we start talking about increasing pensions in this country, certainly in the UK, uh, just when they start to retire. And, and a lot of, and so actually they've sucked up a lot of wealth. And actually it is the, uh, I don't want to sort of, but the economics says this, the, the sort of financial balance sheet shows this, They've benefited a lot more than they've actually put in, which is a weird thing because that hasn't happened before. So it's actually, the oh, man. you know, when you have a housing crisis in California, like why is that so? California is massive, right? Housing crisis in America is a, that's a crazy joke, right? In the UK, you're like, we're a small island. Maybe yeah. we don't have enough like space. Why aren't we building? Why aren't we being more ambitious, right? With what we do. Why aren't we building new cities that like reduce carbon footprints, do all this stuff better? And, but, you know, it seems like we've lost our ability to, to really think about the future, really imagine it. And actually that's on us. That's like on people who are under 40. We're the ones who we complain a lot. Actually, we fail to really genuinely, and the Web3 space isn't like this. Yeah. This is why I love it. But we fail to, in all these other areas, really reimagine the world in our vision about what we want. 
right? Not one that's sort of hyper nostalgic or like uh, trying to please everyone um, in, in many senses. You can't do that. You have to find a strong vision and say, look, these are the basic principles and this is why we're going to do it. And then, and then force the change in many ways, right? Um, I, and that's why I love being in the Web3 world, right? Because that's exactly in many ways what we're doing. I, I, it's a beautiful way to put it. And I, I agree. I agree with that sentiment so much. And I really want to thank you and taking the time on and coming on the show today and and and, and teaching us all about that. And uh, thank you, Charlie. I, I look forward to talk to, talking to you again soon. And I hope everyone uh, we have all the links in the show notes enjoyed today. And uh, we'll check out more. You know, the I think I'm going to call the show the rise of the info slave. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully the fall of the info. Slave, no, all the fall right? of the info slave. That, yeah. Let's do that. All right, cool. I'll talk to you soon. All right, Charlie. Thank you so much.